But in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there's some different ways that the Bible points to Christ back in the Old Testament. You know, some of them are just blunt. They're just kind of point blank. And we always think of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So that passage in Micah chapter 5 just talks about this one that's coming. One who is from of old. He pre-existed. You know, we have our beginning in our mother's wombs at conception. Christ existed from eternity past, but He became a man when He was born into this world. And so it refers to this one from the times of old that would come and be born in Bethlehem. The passage just puts it very bluntly. Also, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Some of the prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to Christ and to the first Christmas just state it plainly. Others we find within what we call types. In other words, we see something like uh, like the ark, right? Noah's ark is a is a type of salvation. It kind of gives us a picture of God's saving work among us. We find um, also within patterns that we find within the Bible things like Sabbaths, like right the Sabbath day points to the rest that we have in Christ. We rest from our works and we trust in Him. And the Bible points to Christ as the fulfillment of our Sabbath day. There's other things that happen in the Old Testament, like when they got water from the rock. What does the water signify? Well, in your desert, water signifies life, right? If you don't have it, you die. It says that rock was Christ following Israel around at that time. Jesus would refer to Him as the true bread that came down from heaven. Also referencing the manna that God gave to the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. So there's many different ways that Christ is shown in the Old Testament that was supposed to give them this great picture so that when they got to where Christ did what He did, they would see Him clearly. Well, one of the ways that we see Christ, for example, is in a, in a pattern of God's dealing with you. You'll find it in people. There's pictures of Christ in like David. There's pictures of Christ in Moses. In fact, Moses was told that one day a prophet would arise like Moses, pointing to Christ again. I'm the nation of Israel itself points to Christ. In fact, we see that with some of the prophecies dealing with Christ and that Christmas event when He was brought into the world. In fact, we see Him as a fulfillment of both Moses, kind of the new Moses, and the true Israel. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, who's presenting Jesus as the Messiah to the Jewish people, the Gospel of Matthew just follows the pattern of Israel history. Notice both of them were protected in Egypt. When Abraham was first given the promise that he's going to be blessed and he's going to be turned into a big family and then into a great nation, and through him the blessing would come upon the whole world, he was promised this promised land. Abraham goes up into that promised land area and begins to sojourn there. The blessing would extend through Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was the chosen one whose name would be changed to Israel, which is still the name of the nation today. 
Jacob would have 12 sons. There would be some sibling rivalry within the 12 sons as Joseph, next to the youngest, begins to have these dreams from God about how he's going to be lifted up and his brothers are going to bow before him at one day. His brothers don't like that and so they sell him into slavery and guess where Joseph ends up? Down into Egypt. And that becomes really significant because several years later, Joseph has been mistreated in a few different occasions in Egypt and then finally through interpreting some dreams of the Pharaoh, he tells the Pharaoh about a famine that is coming upon the world. There's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine that are going to wipe out the seven years of plenty. The Pharaoh says, I need somebody wise to be able to handle this. Who's wiser than the guy that could tell me the dream to begin with? And so he makes Joseph second in command, only second to Pharaoh, and the famine comes. And when the famine comes, guess who needs help? His family. Jacob ends up moving his family, which is 70 people at the time, moving down into Egypt to be protected from the famine. What do we see about Jesus? The wise men come seeking Jesus sometime after his birth. And they're looking for him and they show up to Herod and they say, where's the one to be born king of the Jews? And he puts on a facade, says, well, when you guys go find him, he calls for the scribes and they tell him Bethlehem. And so they go looking for him in Bethlehem. He says, when you find him right where he is, come back and let me know so I can go worship him. Uh, Which, of course, he doesn't want to worship him. He wants to get rid of him. Joseph is warned in a dream, the child's in danger. You've got to get out of here. And where does he need to go? Egypt. Protected in Egypt. And that's why when you see the prophecy... Out of Egypt, if I called my son, it's going to actually refer to both. So they're both protected in Egypt during their infancy. Christ actually as an infant. The nation of Israel as still just a family in its infancy stage before it became a whole nation. One day, those twelve sons would be the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. But in its infancy, it's protected in Egypt. But then out of Egypt... Have I called my son? And God sends Moses in to deliver the nation of Israel. 400 years later, deliver the nation of Israel out of the empire of Egypt. Well, then we see the same thing with Christ. Christ comes out of Egypt later, returns, goes up into Nazareth. But then not only that, they both came through water. When Israel left Egypt, the very next thing that they did is go through the Red Sea. And the Bible actually looks back at that event and refers to it as a baptism. And what is the next thing that happens that Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew? He goes to John the Baptist and he is baptized. Following that, they get into the wilderness. And for 40 years, Israel is tested in the wilderness. Jesus, right after he gets baptized by John, the Bible says the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. They both address the law of God. The law is given to Moses to expound to the people. Jesus, in in Matthew chapter 5, right after the temptation takes place, what does He do? We have the Sermon on the Mount where He expounds the law of God to His followers. And then, lastly, miraculously displayed the glory of God. Out in the wilderness, you see all kinds of amazing things. God guiding them by a pillar of uh, fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He feeds them miraculously through providing either quail or manna, which manna means what is it? They didn't even know what it was. Giving them water to drink from a rock, doing these miraculous things. And what do we see right after Jesus, after His teaching on the mount? Miracles. One miracle after another that Matthew records of Jesus. So the, the outline of the book of Matthew talking about the life of Christ just follows perfectly the history of the nation of Israel. Even the nation of Israel would prepare us for what Christ would do. You know, as I was thinking about all these different themes, there's so many different themes that run through the Bible. And as I was thinking about Christmas this season and thinking about what is a theme that I see that seems to be running through not just the whole Bible, but Christmas itself. And you know what came to me? Exile. It's a prominent theme in the Bible, this this idea of exile. 
this prominent theme of exile I see running right through Christmas as well. We start off with Mary and Joseph. They're, they're on the road. They're away from home. Now, they are going back to Joseph's hometown for the census. But the point is, they're, they're not at home where it would be much more comfortable to have the baby and everything. Uh, not only are they on the room, there's, there's no room in the inn. Now, I wrestle with this a little bit. I'm not necessarily holding it against the keeper of the inn that, that he didn't have rooms. They're full up. What can he do? I don't know. But you know, at the same time, this is God's son here and everything is orchestrated. I mean, even the stars in the sky are telling where he's at. So everything's orchestrated just right. Why is it orchestrated so that there's no room in the inn? That can't just be some accident that slipped or whoops, didn't think about lodging, right? That might happen to me when I travel. Not the, not the Son of God. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be a purpose. And you know what I think the purpose is? I think it's maybe twofold. I can think of at least two. Is One is humility. Christ didn't come in all the pomp and circumstance. He didn't come to the palace. He came to the poor house, right? And so the humility of being born in the barn. You know how many times I was asked if I was born in the barn? <laughs> Every time I left the door open. But He came in that kind of lowliness, that kind of humility. But, but not only, I don't think it's just that. I think there's something else here. There's no room for you. The Creator of the world. And there's no room for you to be born in. I think God the Father orchestrated that. It definitely goes with everything else that's going to come. In fact, we can see shortly after that, there's no room on the throne. The wise men come from the east and they come to Herod and say, where's the one to be born king of the Jews? And Herod is all about getting rid of this potential king. It's not uncharacteristic for Herod if you look at his history. But he is all about getting rid of this one. So much so that he will slaughter a village of children under the age of two to make sure that he gets the one. And so there's no room on the throne. You know, I don't think it's just Herod that has that problem. I think that's the common problem of the day. Why do people resist Christ? It's because... If you accept Christ, there's somebody else on the throne. It's not you anymore. And you know what? That's the same battle that's raging for souls of men and women today. We look at it and say, salvation, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want an eternity in heaven versus an eternity in hell? Because it means you've got to relinquish the throne. If you don't trust in Christ, you get to be on the throne. You get to be God in your life. Sorry of a God as you are, you still get to be it. You see, Herod was like, no way, you're not taking my throne. Many people today, no way, you're not taking my throne. And so there's no room in the inn. There's no room on the throne. There's no room in Israel because in order for him to be protected, where does he have to go? He has to go outside of the nation Israel to go into Egypt. And lastly, there's no room in the, on the earth. Because when you get down toward the end, what's going to happen? Here's the one king of the Jews. He's going to come in in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And they're going to be saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But before the end of that week hits, they're going to be yelling, crucify him. And they will be putting a crown on his head, but it will be a crown of thorns. And they will be hanging a robe on him, but it will only be in mockery. There's no room for you on this throne. There's no room for you even on this earth, as they say, he needs to be crucified. With Christ and Christmas, we actually see an exile. In fact, in our passage in Philippians in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I always compare this to a child. You know, sometimes with my grandchildren, they'll be eating a cookie or they've got one on the table in front of them or something. And I'm going to say, hey, what are, you, what are you doing with my cookie? And you know what they do. My cookie, Papa. They grab that cookie and they're like turning. Going to keep it away from you. Well, that's the picture that he's doing here. He says Jesus Christ was he was God. But he did not count that as a thing to be grasped. No, I won't let it go. That's mine. I'm not. 
And it's talking about the sacrifice that he's willing to make to leave the splendors of heaven and come here. He was in very nature, by very form, God. He's found in fashion as a man. And then what does he do as a man? He becomes a servant. He lowers himself. He humbles himself. And then becomes obedient even to death. And even death on the cross. The whole point of the cross was to humiliate you. You know what that looks like to me? It looks like exile. It's a voluntary exile, but nevertheless, it's an exile. You see, Jesus entered our exile. He wasn't kicked out of heaven, but he left it all the same. In John chapter 1, verses 9-13, through 13, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, exile came to his own, didn't recognize him, came to his own, didn't receive him, did not welcome him. He's living out that exile. Now, as we consider this Christmas exile, let's get an understanding of exile. Exile is a prominent theme within the Bible. When we look at the Bible, right back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit that they're not supposed to. God comes and he kind of calls them to account for it. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's actually an act of mercy. God didn't want us living forever in a sinful condition. He's going to redeem us from that sinful condition instead. Before this, Adam and Eve walked with God, talked with God in the cool of the day, in the evening, in the garden. But now, we're exiled. They're out of the garden. They're out of the presence of God. And humanity is exiled. And that's uh, our life, our existence, is outside the garden. We still live outside the garden. Now, Christ has come at this time. He has come and redeemed us from the curse of the law. But we haven't seen the total fulfillment of that yet. We're going to when He comes back. But it's not here yet. So we have access to God. We are in fellowship with God, but still living really kind of outside the garden as far as our worldly experience here. But it's not just there. Well, Israel is God's chosen people. He chooses Abraham and then Abraham's descendants and the nation of Israel. And what does Israel do? He says, you know, you follow me and you're going to be blessed and I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. And they don't. They follow other gods and they turn against God. So he gives them over to their enemies and that ends up in exile. The nation of Israel ends up splitting into two nations. You have the ten northern tribes, which will still be called Israel. The two southern tribes that are called Judah. And the ten northern tribes are sinning against God. And God gives them over to Assyria. Assyria comes down and carries them off into captivity. A couple hundred years later, the two tribes of Judah, same thing. They didn't learn the lesson from the northern tribes and they sin against God. And Babylon comes in and he carries them off into captivity. And so they're into exile. They're out of their homeland again. And so it's a prominent theme. We're living outside the garden. Israel's outside of the promised land. Even when they get to come back into the promised land, Daniel had foretold that, that not only was there the Babylonian Empire, but after that would come the, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. And, and so all the way up to the day of Christ, Israel's back in their promised land, but they're not really running the show themselves. They're underneath Roman domination. And so even when they got to return home, in a sense, they're still a little bit kind of like living in exile. And so exile is a prominent theme within the Bible. Why? Well, it's because of sin. 
Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. You see, the thing that's really cool about this is that when Jesus came to earth that Christmas, He entered our exile. You see, He leaves home so we can go home. That's what's happening here. He's entering our exile. And you see kind of the completeness of that when He's on the cross because when He's on that cross, again, He calls out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He's exiled from God at that moment. And Jesus comes and He experiences, enters our exile so that He can redeem us, so that He can bring us back home. In fact, that's what the Bible points to. And that's what we need to consider next is this overcoming, this exile. How is this exile overcome? It's through Christ. This is what it's talking about in Philippians. In verses 8-11 through 11 it says, "...being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on, death on the cross." Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came and He entered our exile. He paid that death penalty that hung over us so that He could redeem us from that. What happens after that? He is raised up. He is exalted before God. And He is doing that to raise us up. The Old Testament talked about this too in Isaiah chapter 53. and It says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus entered our exile so that He could take our sins, our iniquities upon Himself so that He would bear the guilt of the many. He entered our exile so He could put an end to our exile, to our separation from God. Galatians chapter 4, and speaking of that Christmas, it says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Peter would put it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so Old Testament, New Testament alike tells us this one thing, that Christ would come, or has come, to lay down His life for us, to bear our sins in His own body on that tree, to put an end to the exile. Well, there's one last area that actually He dealt with first in Philippians that we need to consider, and that is living in exile. Because we have been redeemed by Christ, but we have not yet seen the the whole fulfillment of that. Right? The salvation kind of is in stages here. Instantly, when we put our faith in Christ, we're saved from the penalty of sin. As we grow in Him day by day, we're saved increasingly more from the power of sin in our life. And when He comes back for us, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. We haven't hit that part yet. And so even though we've been redeemed, we're still living in a sin-cursed and fallen world. We're, we're still living, so to speak, outside the garden, even though we have access to God, still in exile, in a sense. So what do we do? What should life look like as we continue to live out this life in exile? Well, in Philippians, it's actually what he started the passage with. If we back up to verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know, that's one of the kind of the cool things about the Christmas season, isn't it? is that you do find people 
seemingly taken more time to think about others and care for other people. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then that's where he goes into what is the example of Christ. He, he was willing to give up all of heaven's splendor to come and be born a baby for you. We ought to be able to put other people before ourselves as well. That's part of what it means to live this life in exile. We, we, while we're here, while we're waiting for Christ to return, we need to be putting other people above ourselves. You know, we get some other instruction throughout the Bible dealing with this subject of exile as well. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet that would write to Israel or would preach to Israel or Judah and say, you know what? You're going to get carried off into captivity if you don't change. He had told them, he had warned them, and they ignored it. And so now they're getting carried off into captivity. Well, while Jeremiah was telling them about their coming captivity, this is what God through the mouth and the pen of Jeremiah told them to do. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4-7, through it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah telling him, he says, look, this is how you live in exile. When you get there, build houses, live in them, plant your gardens, eat the fruit. Have kids, raise your families, pray for the welfare of the nation that you're carried off into captivity. Pray for the welfare of that nation. Why? Because in their welfare, you're going to find your welfare. If things are going smooth in Babylon, then things are probably going smoother for you in Babylon. And you know what? Daniel and guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the, they took that to heart, and that's what they did. When they got there, they were recognized as being intelligent and educated, and they were put in the Babylonian education system, and they were taught things by them as well. And after three years of being educated there, then they were put in positions and positions of authority and where they could use that knowledge to help run the kingdom, and especially these other exiles that are in there. And what do you see of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? Well, they're participating and they're successful. And the Babylonian Empire is actually doing better because of their presence in the empire. But when it came time where they were being fed, and they were being fed with stuff that was a disgrace for them to eat, they said, how about you give us something else? And they said, no, I could get in a lot of trouble with the king if you do that. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, just give us fruit and vegetables for a few weeks, and then you monitor us, see how we're doing. And at the end of that, if we're doing good, then just keep doing that. We can do that without violating our conscience before God. But otherwise, we're going to have a problem here. And so they did that, and they got away with that one. There's a vision that Nebuchadnezzar has about this image. And Daniel interprets this dream of this image. Was the head was made of gold, and that signifies Nebuchadnezzar's empire, and then other empires that would come below him as it worked its way down. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar got pretty full of himself being the head of gold and the strongest empire. And so he had a statue built in, in commemoration of himself and then commanded everybody to bow down to it. Otherwise, you get thrown in the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, well, we can't go there. We can't do that. And so even though they're being a benefit in the society that they're at, when it comes time for everybody to bow, here's these three guys standing up looking like a sore thumb in the middle of the crowd because, well, they're just not going to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar tells them, if you don't bow down, you're going in the fiery furnace. They said, you know what? God could save us from that if he wants to. But even if he doesn't, you need to know we're not bowing down. We can't do that. You see, what are they doing? They're being a benefit in the society that they're in. They're seeking their goodness, their welfare. 
At the same time, they're maintaining their distinction. They're saying, you know, we're not going to bow to that statue. They're going to make another rule that you have to pray to nobody else but the king. And Daniel prays three times a day right by the window. He continues to do it just like he always did. Gets thrown in the lion's den for that. Now, God saved him from that just like he saved the other three from the fiery furnace. But the point was, they were doing just what Jeremiah told them to do. Go in and live and prosper and do well and succeed. Be a blessing to other people. But... You're not going to worship other gods. You're not going to give up the diet God told you to eat. You're not going to do these different things. They were able to maintain that. You know, Jesus was the same way. They would ask him about taxes. Do we pay tax to Caesar or not? Jesus tells him, give me a coin. What, whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's image is on the coin. Then give to Caesar what is his. But give to God what is his. Honor God with who you are. The apostles kind of similar to what Christ did, similar to what Daniel did. Because with the apostles, when they're teaching, they teach us to obey those who are in authority over us, obey governors and kings and, and those who are sent to enforce the, the laws among us. But at the same time, we see them having a limit to just how far they will go in obeying those same things. In Acts chapter 4, they were arrested for preaching the gospel. And it says when the leadership there, so when they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so they're like, what are we going to do with these people? They continue to threaten them. Acts chapter 5, we see that they're right back in there. They get thrown in jail again for teaching about Christ. God lets them go. They go right back to the temple, right back to teaching about Christ. And so they bring them back in before him again. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. That's how we're supposed to be living. As we continue to live out this exile, we need to do like Jeremiah did. We need to be a benefit in our society. We need to be involved in the community around us. We need to be a blessing and striving for the good of our nation, the good of our community within it. But the fact of the matter is, there's lines we will not cross. And there's a distinctiveness about us as Christians that has to be maintained. Peter would refer to the believers as he wrote to them. He would refer to them as strangers and people in exile. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Several verses later, verses 17 through 19, he says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then also he says in chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see what he's saying? While you're living amongst these Gentiles, while you're living amongst these unbelievers, he says, remember, you are a sojourner and in exile. That's why you're still amongst them. 
but you're going to do it differently. You're not going to give in to the passions that they give in to. You're not going to live and do the things that they do because you're just a sojourner. You're not home yet. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks a lot about this. This is right in the middle of what we call the hall of faith. The chapter, looking at the example of faith given to us in the Old Testament. And he stops kind of right in the middle of it. And he describes what is common to all of them. And what is it that's common to all of them? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They recognized that they were not home yet, that they're strangers, that they're exiles in the land. Notice it says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So as we look at Christmas, one of the prominent Bible themes that Christmas plugs right into is this idea of exile. The very reason for Christmas is because of the exile of mankind from the garden. Because we were kicked out of the garden because of sin. That needs to be remedied. And Christmas is the beginning of that remedy. 